Welcome to the first Global Ideas podcast in our speaker interview series, where we talk with leaders about the issues facing global health in a volatile world. My name's Lloyd Nash from Global Ideas, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Vivian Lin, who joins the podcast via Skype from Manila, where she's the Director of Health Systems for the World Health Organization Western Pacific Region. Dr. Vivian Lin's career spans health policy and program development, health planning, public health teaching and research. She was previously the Professor of Public Health and Head of the School of Public Health at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Dr. Lin and I have a really wide-ranging discussion about the state of health and development in the Western Pacific region in this political moment. We talk about the social determinants of health, the evolution of sustainable development from Alma-Ata through to the Global Goals. We talk about global cooperation into the 21st century and the risks and benefits of international aid. We talk about emerging threats like antimicrobial resistance and social health and how this approach to reducing the burden of non-communicable diseases are fundamentally different to how we've approached health and medicine in the past. This is a great introduction to the issues at the forefront of global health and development, and I really hope you enjoy it. I'd like to say a special thanks to the HEAL Foundation for supporting the production of this podcast series. HEAL are on a mission to improve healthcare through innovative education, and you should check them out. Let me start by telling you a little more about Dr. Lin. She's responsible for the Division of Health Systems at the World Health Organizational Regional Office and for technical support to countries on a really wide range of issues. Let me just list off some of these responsibilities here. It's a very impressive list. Universal health coverage, health policy and planning, health financing, health workforce, health information systems, health system research, pharmaceuticals, medical technologies, traditional medicine, service delivery and quality, health law and regulation, and community engagement, with cross-cutting issues including the sustainable development goals, social determinants of health, equity, human rights, and gender. Dr. Vivian Lin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lloyd. Great to be here. This is an incredibly diverse range of interests and responsibilities that you have there. Tell us a little bit about what a typical day might look like for you. Well, I leave home at 7. I'm in the office by 7.30. That's uh, partly to beat the Manila traffic. And uh, it's also that it's actually a four-hour time zone difference with um, our Fiji office. So it's important to pick up the day um, in the Pacific as issues arise. So from 8 o'clock, I buy, meet with my, my coordination team. So we go over the critical issues that need attention. And then the day is, you know, reasonably uh, nonstop. If I thought about yesterday, we did planning for the 1819 budget. Then we went on to talk about an upcoming meeting with Japan. Then we had a meeting to discuss the parliamentarian meetings that are coming up. I had a lunch with a lovely visitor from Melbourne. We had a presentation by an intern on his final day. We talked about experts to be nominated for the Global Working Group on AMR. We went over the research proposals from the Philippines that we're hoping we're supporting them on. We went through the regional committee meeting in Brisbane and how my site meeting on a book launch be organized. That's just a few things I can remember. Wow, it's, it's incredibly impressive. I know that the, the WHO Western Pacific region has a responsibility for health for a huge section of the planet. I think something like 37 different countries, seven different time zones stretching from New Zealand to Mongolia. 
Um, I mean, it seems to be such a daunting task. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the sheer diversity and the complexity in the region? Look, I think it just makes it so exciting and you could never be bored. And in fact, it stretches beyond New Zealand. We we do go all the way out to Samoa and French Polynesia. And indeed, Cook Islands is actually on the other side of the international dateline. So we, we have transitional economies, we have small island states, we have highly decentralized, very complex countries, and we have high income countries. So really, it, it keeps the brain very well stimulated mm. in terms of the range of issues you have to think about, and how you think about the kinds of solutions that might be out there from other places that could be brought to bear in any one particular country. I understand you've been in Manila now for four years, but I wonder if we could go back and and think about the beginning of your career and, and how you got started in global health and, and why you chose global health as a career. You know, I actually, when I was an undergraduate um, at Yale University, I thought I would do medicine and public health. I was um, in that generation, I suppose, quite inspired by the barefoot doctors in China. So it seemed medicine and public health was a natural thing. But one day I woke up and thought, you know, I don't think I have the patience to be a doctor. And what fascinated me were really the the bigger picture issues. So I, I took time off. I went to uh, work in a health department um, for a semester, and uh, I've never looked back. Um, but as an undergraduate, one of my majors, I did a double uh, major in biology and political science, and I had a very strong interest in international development and comparative government. So I was really just, you know, thinking that uh, global health was a way of uh, bringing everything together the interest in the bigger picture as well as the interest um, in health. Global health really can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I wonder if you can tell us what global health means to you. I I think fundamentally global health is about um, humanity sharing one planet. It's not just about development as it has historically been when we talk about international health, but it's about really that larger set of global forces, whether they are economic, social, political, ecological, um, that shape the way people live um, in communities and and how nations as sovereign states uh, respond, how civil society, um, how the market responds to a whole set of forces. Um, So health is really, I think, a microcosm of these larger forces. And by understanding these global forces, we can also understand what's happening locally better. And also understand how we might take action on some of these global forces. And, and for example, at Global Ideas, we've developed an, an action framework that places models of change on a spectrum of action. And, and I think it's worth me just um, taking a moment to explain to you and, and to the listeners that, that spectrum. Um, we have five personas um, ranging from Incha the innovator, who's really at the forefront of creating new innovations, to Enterprising Erin, who's out there taking innovations to market at scale, to Carlos the campaigner, who's out changing hearts and minds and really creating the political space for change, 
to Grassroots Greg, who's working with community on bottom-up approaches to change, and then to Policy Poe, who's working from the top down through international policy leadership and agreements. And I think clearly you would be a Policy Poe, at least at this stage in your career. Um, have you always been a Policy Poe? Well, I, I think that um, you probably don't go, do go through different trajectories um, as, as you age, as you go through the different phases of your life. Um, and I think while these are nice typologies, uh, clearly they also intersect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that having an interest in political science or politics means that policy was always of interest from the outset. But you can only really understand the world of policy if you spent time at the grassroots trying to make things happen, understand what it's like to be outside of the, the policy system to bring about change as well as working inside that system um, and trying to work within. They are very uh, different styles, but in many ways, you have to constantly be, you always have to be enterprising. You always have to be thinking about how do you go to scale? But I guess at this stage, uh, policy is uh, in my DNA. I want to I want to come back to talk about some of the deeper issues in global health, but I want to start with leadership because I think it's so important, uh, uh, particularly as a core part of what uh, of world of the World Health Organization. Um, and the World Health Organization seeks for every person on the planet a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, not not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And yet, the WHO has a smaller budget than uh, one of the larger hospitals in the United States. So I'm wondering how you reconcile these things and, and how you provide uh, leadership with uh, you know, such a minimal resource. Well, I think, f- firstly, um, money is not everything. You can have a lot of money and use it in not very smart ways. Or you could have a small amount of money and use it in enterprising sort of ways. So I think, really, it's about being strategic with the kind of resources that you have. And by resources, not only financial, but the kind of networks uh, that you work with, how um, you can form coalitions, bring about change, build partnerships, move in the same direction. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's the countries, the governments that really have to take the responsibility. So a lot of what WHO does, whether you call it a leadership role, whether you call it the convening role, is actually about nudging. It is about providing the best evidence possible. It is about um, providing normative frameworks. But at the end of the day, none of those things matter unless those ideas, those, uh, the, the evidence is taken on board uh, by the countries. And so in that sense, the WHO is in, in quite a unique role in that it's not a donor with you know, money like a bilateral donor or a multilateral bank. But it is governed by actually the countries. It is a secretariat as well as a technical agency. So it has a particularly close relationship with governments, particularly ministries of health, that gives it a, a basis of trust for working. And so maintaining a very good brand, maintaining an integrity of the organization in that type of role is a very important part of uh, how to make a difference. 
You've mentioned that WHO has that technical and, and normative role in global health, and I'm just wondering if you can share us uh, an example, um, an example of success, maybe something that you've worked on that illustrates the capacity of WHO really to shift the system. Well, look, I, I think there are probably many, many examples across the WHO, but I think it's also important to recognise how long it takes to have an idea take hold and to make reality, I think that one of the most important things that WHO has ever stood for is the declaration of Ama'ata. It was back in 1978, the call for health all by the year 2000, where 17 years past 2000, we don't have health for all, but we are now working on universal health coverage. And so, in a sense, that idea that health is a right and that everyone should have access to the kind of the quality services they need to good health, um, consistent with the principles enshrined in the definition of health and in the WHO constitution is probably the most important normative framework that the WHO has offered. Yet in every country, it takes a slightly different frame and all countries uh, are on this journey. But countries do aspire, um, but health is fundamentally a social and political issue. And so the journey goes on, Um, but these aspirations remain. And the philosophical principles, I think, are well agreed. That journey obviously evolved into the Millennium Development Goals and then in, in 2015 into, into the Sustainable Development Goals. And the Sustainable Development Goals have a singular goal to ensure healthy lives and to promote well-being for all people at all ages. I mean, that singular goal is a little, a little different to the three separate health goals that we saw in the Millennium Development Goals. And I'm just wondering, how has your approach and, and the approach of the WHO changed with that evolution? I, I think this is a, a longer history in global health and a very interesting one because, you know, at the time that the Declaration of Ama Atta was adopted, um, there was a strong sense that we had to get away from singular focus on eradication of particular diseases, important as those goals may be, and that uh, we really needed to develop sustainable systems and that at the end of the day, community capacity uh, to manage their health was also at the core. However, um, as we saw the global um, economic uh, situation going into decline, the whole concept of selective primary health care came to be. And so this was the idea that you could actually just select cost-effective interventions. And so I think that kind of a framework actually laid the basis for the Millennium Development Goals. And the Millennium Development Goals, or MDGs, in a sense was presupposed on the theory that if you could just get the really cost-effective interventions and you could do them to scale and you put lots of money in and you work in the poorest communities with enough money and enough energy and focus, you could eradicate global poverty and address health. Unfortunately, the world is a little bit more complicated and much of the world uh, either did not uh, attain 
the MDGs or uh, progressed and then uh, regressed. And it was not a very smooth journey. So I think that we have really gone from a more top-down technical type of orientation, exemplified the MDG, to a much more holistic understanding, one that in public health terms we might call a social determinants of health perspective with the SDGs. So the fact that the SDGs are uh, integrated uh, and interrelated and indivisible um, and bring economic, social, cultural, and ecological um, issues together um, and recognizing that they have to be uh, all addressed with universal health coverage as a fundamental platform for the health sector. In, in many ways, I think it's a, it's a very substantial shift from the framework of the MDGs. But it does go back to uh, primary health care, um, but with a much more explicit recognition that it's not just the health sector, it really is the partnership across sectors and the partnership with the community as a whole. Also, that uh, universal health coverage is going to be absolutely key to being able to meet the health goal in, in the sustainable development framework. You obviously work very closely on that aspect of the SDGs. I wonder if you can just briefly explain to listeners what universal health coverage is. Universal health coverage, to put it quite simply, means that all people have access to the quality health services they need without suffering financial hardship. Uh, the, the, there are several different uh, aspects of that that's quite important. One is all people or equity. Um, one is quality um, because having access is not sufficient if you don't have quality. But another one is that services is not just about going into a hospital or going to a doctor, but it is the whole range from health promotion through to acute treatment, to rehabilitation and palliation. So it is about a whole of health system approach. And of course, to make sure that people could seek care without worrying about their finances, I think is the other very important bit. So these are the, the critical dimensions of that definition. I want to move now to some big issues in, in global health and development. And the first one, I want to talk through is, is the future of, of international aid and particularly aid for health. It, it seems to me that we're entering a period in our history, especially after the global financial crisis, where the flow of international aid is really drying up and rich industrialized countries like the US are, are turning more inwards and responding to their own kind of populist and nationalist movements. And this has really affected the flow of aid. Um, I'm wondering how you see that will, that will impact on, on human health going forward and, and if you can reflect on, on why you think aid is, is important um, to achieving our health goals. You know, I, I think um, when we face these kinds of situation, uh, you know, there is the classic saying that the uh, Chinese characters for crisis, the word crisis, comprises two characters. One is danger and the other is opportunity. So while it is a very challenging situation, 
it's not necessarily an entirely bad situation. So let me just talk about what might possibly be the problems of aid. And I think that one of the problems of aid is the extent to which the countries and the communities are actually really in control. And how much of it is actually about the donor agenda? And how much of that donor agenda is actually related to the foreign policy interests of the donor countries? Um, so if you look at the US, um, the country that receives the largest uh, amount of aid has not been the poorest countries in the world. If you look across the myriad of health programs where we see uh, aid, but, and by that, both official development assistance and private philanthropy go into, it's not necessarily the problems with the most significant disease burden. And sometimes the uh, funding available at the global level goes everywhere, yet the global burden is not the same thing as a regional or national disease burden. So I, I think that the opportunity is to actually not be so donor-driven uh, when the donors don't have that much money, but to really think about how do we encourage stronger learning from each other, especially as we also have some new entrants into the development assistance world, the BRICS Bank, as an example. So I, I think there are possibly some opportunities for different kinds of partnerships. Um, and perhaps it will also be a, an opportunity for some governments to actually invest in the health system um, because previously they may have been able to withdraw domestic funding on the basis that they were receiving donor funds. Let's, let's take this opportunity and think about, can we actually fix some of the distortionary impact of some of the, the vertical programs in, in particular? On the other hand, I think the, the question that I think that face us as a world is really one of increasing polarization, uh, the increasing gap between the rich and poor, but it is the, that those gaps within countries that I think is driving quite a lot of the inward turning uh, perspectives. And so we need to think about, you know, instead of aid, perhaps targeting particular health programs, are there ways in which the funding is to help close the inequity in a more holistic way. So instead of a global fund for three diseases, we might be having a global fund for health equity. And so that we actually rethink the kind of investment that we can have in order to actually bridge the social divide, which underpins the health divide. Um, and so that we are less concerned about did, how many lives did you save today, but really looking at to what extent are we closing the gap and are people able to actually take control of the conditions that affect their daily lives and therefore their health. It's a paradigm shift that we actually need to have in the way that funding is given. 
So a tricky moment in history. In, indeed, a tricky moment. And you mentioned the, the fact that the economies and societies are becoming ever deeper integrated into a, into a global collection of nation states. And I'm just wondering whether you think that our global institutions are up to the task of managing the complexity of global integration and cooperation into the 21st century and beyond, and, and if not, how it might need to change. Well, I, I think that the global institutions fundamentally still work on the notion of a nation state, even though the nation state may not be as powerful as some of the transnational corporations that run the world, that dominate some of the international uh, uh, networks, formal in, in informal. But do we have another form, something other than the nation state? Um, at the moment... I don't think we do. I think that there is a question about how do we actually uh, focus the work of the nation state, uh, of these international bodies, on really making a difference in the countries in a way that cuts across the organizational divides. It's very easy for or institutions, whether they're UN organizations in the health sector, in other sectors, or any other international body, to be thinking about the survival and the status of those their, their own entity. But I think one of the big reform challenges is really for all the international entities to be very country-focused and to be asking themselves, what difference are we making? Mm -hmm. um, and to really look at the way in which uh, organizations are structured, the budgets are structured, the financial incentives in the system, the way they move across borders, to be very clear about what are the big issues we have to work on, how do we really have an impact uh, in the countries. So I don't think we can get away from, from international organizations. I don't think we can get away from nation state, but I do think that we can open up these organizations to more voices. And I think that we can look at uh, how these organizations also need to work differently. Are there examples within WHO that are bringing in more voices or, or brokering more broader collaborations? In our particular region, we have recognized the importance of getting away from program silos and a top-down approach. And in that regard, the work on healthy cities has been a very, very important platform for quite a number of years because mayors, at the end of the day, do bring various sectors together so that if you want to produce health and create an enabling uh, environment for good health, cities and city governments are very, very important. Now, we have also, in more recent discussion uh, on the sustainable development goals, recognized that um, parliamentarians have a critical role in terms of working across sectors and bring the community's views to a policy-making fora. And so next week, we will have the meeting of the Asia-Pacific Parliamentarians Forum for Global Health, which is framed around the SDGs, and to work with parliamentarians to develop really a bipartisan support 
for public health goals. So that's another way in which I guess the policy poll would be working in terms of, you know, working with decision makers. I want to ask you about two more big issues in in global health. And the first one is uh, about that transition that we're seeing between um, communicable to non-communicable disease. People might have heard those terms. If we turned the clock back just about 50 years and looked at what was causing the majority of deaths around the world, it would have been infectious diseases like diarrhea, pneumonia as well as undernutrition and the complications of pregnancy and childbirth. But that picture looks very different now. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us what's changed. What, what's the outlook um, for, for the global burden of disease in 2017? You know, there's one frame, which is that we managed to um, control infectious diseases. We now have non-communicable diseases. We also have a whole range of social health problems like Um, drug abuse um, and violence, uh, which some people may or may not characterize as a non-communicable disease. But I think in our region, we are also the center of emerging infectious diseases. Um, And we really have the triple burden of disease in, in many ways. Now, the development of scientific and medical knowledge since the late 19th century, of course, has been very important in the development of vaccines, in the development of a whole lot of um, medicines uh, to be able to treat infectious diseases, just as the improvement in housing, water, sanitation, the work environment, and so on and so forth, have been very important. But I think we also need to actually take a a larger holistic approach and see that some of the the disruption in our ecosystem that is very much tied to this drive for industrialization and the drive for um, urbanization um, is now creating additional challenges in terms of climate change, which brings us back into a whole range of emerging diseases and re-emerging diseases. Um, So in that sense, I think that we really need to take quite a holistic approach and not let ourselves be in a situation where we compete between, is there more money going to go into tobacco control versus health security and prevention of Ebola and Zika? Um, but really be thinking again from the SDG perspective, how do we recognise the importance of the environment and that environment in the way that supports healthy living as well as, you know, a viable planet um, and that we really um, look at every aspect of our, our lives as individuals, as communities, as societies, as an integrated whole. With non-communicable disease, it Mm. seems to me that risk factor prevention is just so important because ultimately uh, it's a kind of uh, accumulation of risk factors that ultimately lead to to these chronic diseases. I'm wondering how we can help people to, to make healthier choices in their lives rather than creating rules, but maybe uh, you talked about nudging earlier. How can we nudge people to make healthier choices? People have to make their choices and make the right decisions. 
it makes a huge difference, obviously, to have knowledge about what's the right thing to do. But we also know that uh, there's a plenty of cognitive dissonance around where people know what's good and people don't do it. So I think this is where the social environment becomes very important. Uh, it's the environment of the local community, the schools, the workplaces, um, the social networks uh, are very important in creating and reinforcing as well as changing social norms. Uh, so, so this is uh, an important aspect. It's not just the individuals, um, but it is groups. So we do have to look at structural interventions at these micro settings that um, support healthy living and, uh, and, and healthy eating. Obviously, it's also very important to think about the supply of products. I mean, in, in Australia, you know, we're so well ahead of the rest of the world, even if we think we're still a bit far behind in terms of uh, the understanding about good environment, good food, local sourcing, and we have, you know, wonderful farmers market. Um, and just uh, these are all really, really important to have and to, to make these accessible, affordable. In so many other countries, we are still seeing major uh, marketing push by multinationals of poor quality food, of uh, tobacco, uh, coupled with pollution of the air, the water, the soil. So we do really have to think about all these different factors um, and how it's important to actually work on those structural change while we actually also uh, ensure that people have an understanding about how to actually take good care of themselves. The next big issue I want to discuss is antimicrobial resistance. You mentioned in your introduction AMR, the, the, uh, the acronym for antimicrobial resistance. The first antibiotics, which are antimicrobials that are active against bacteria, were developed just before the Second World War and really transformed medicine. And suddenly conditions like pneumonia that would have killed uh, a patient back then were, were treatable um, with a course of injections. But now looking into the 21st century, we've almost turned the clock back to a period where some patients with certain resistant infections have actually untreatable diseases with the current crop of medicines that we have. So I'm wondering if you can reflect on what happened, what's been the journey over those 80 or 90 years since the, the development of, of antimicrobials and what, what have been the main drivers? There's a, a multiplicity of, of issues and it is a, a absolutely fascinating story. The, more, the bigger challenge is what do we do about it next, of course. But I, I think that, um, you know, the miracle of modern medicine, of which um, antibiotics is one, really created a certain sense of complacency, that we could go to the doctor, get a prescription, and antibiotics is a magic pill. And we take it and we're better. And the overuse thereof certainly has been part of the, the reason for, for resistance. So part of the problem is it being prescribed, over-prescribed. Some doctors would say they prescribe it because the patients ask for it and they don't want to not give the patients what the patients ask for. There's also the problem of antibiotics not necessarily being consumed 
to uh, through the full course. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a second reason, and there's multiple reasons for that. People feel better; they don't think they need it; they don't really understand the dangers of not taking a full course. But we've also seen the use of antibiotics um, in the food chain. So where we see antibiotics used not only for animal health, but as a growth promoter. So in fisheries,、uh, so it's a very big part of agriculture. And so we're seeing this the antibiotics in the food chain, and that is of course not necessary in most of the cases, other than treating sick animals. And so this is also contributing to the overuse and misuse. And when we have overuse and misuse, we see this problem of resistance. And you mentioned that the the challenge now is is what to do about it. I know that there's been a paucity of new drug development、um, because of lack of incentives for 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 new commercial development. I'm wondering what、uh, what is being done looking forward to to address this as a major global health challenge. I think obviously at the global level, there's a lot of work being done both、um, with pu public private、um, partnerships to try and look at. The R and D side of things, and while that's important,、uh, the other side, of course, is the prevention issues. The fact that we actually still have many health facilities, not to mention schools and and other public facilities, in the countries in our region with no running water,、um, speaks to really、um, a situation where unnecessary infections are arising. So we mustn't forget the prevention side of how we can actually, in in some places, we are still really in perhaps the first industrial revolution、uh, type of conditions. But the kind of behaviour change is actually what we really need to work on in the health sector. And by behaviour change, it is doctors prescribing appropriately and giving good and sufficient education. To the patients, it is about people taking antibiotics appropriately. So this is a pretty substantial set of behavior change, and、um, and so I think the so that's one dimension. But then, when we look at the different health systems in in many countries, there is no regulation that antibiotics is available only through prescription. Anybody could go to a pharmacy and just buy. So I think regulatory framework to ensure appropriate access to antibiotics is a very important policy measure. And in some countries, even if there might be a regulatory control about accessing、um, antibiotics at the pharmacy, there is not a health insurance system, whether it's a public system or, or any other form of health insurance. So when someone is poor, they go to the pharmacy and they say, "This is、uh, the amount of money I have. What can I get for this?" They may be be given just a portion of a course of antibiotics. So the health financing issue is also very fundamental to actually addressing this problem. Then you go to the agriculture sector, and then you think about the vets and the farmers, and you have to say, okay, how do we work with these partners to look at changing agricultural practices?
how do they continue to have a viable business without using antibiotics? How do they maintain animal health without prophylactic antibiotics in the food feed lot? So there's a lot that we need to be doing in looking at the partnership with agriculture, with the animal sector. So I think pretty soon, you know, the extent of behavior change and the complicated incentives, including the industry and the profit motive and the trade issues, starts to make the AMR problem look very much like the obesity problem in terms of the complex array of strategies we need. So we have our Global Ideas Forum coming up in September, and our forum theme is Global Health in a Volatile World, People, Politics and Planet. We've touched on many of the issues today that we'll be discussing at that forum. We'll have 200 people in the early part of their career come together from all different personal professional backgrounds to think about taking action both individually and collectively on some of these big issues that we've discussed that really perpetuate health inequalities in our world and in our region. Do you have any advice for for those people who are coming along to think about the next steps in their own career and how we can take action at the individual level but also work better together to, to, to work on these upstream drivers? Well, I think a starting point is being very open-minded about new ideas, being very collaborative in terms of understanding how different interests and different knowledge base and different skills come together in a coalition, being very devoted to the question of, are we making a difference? Can we actually see change? And what's the next step? And what does it take? And being very reflective about learning the lessons of every step that you do take to see if you could do better the next time. It's a journey. It's a journey. It's a very exciting journey. We're almost out of time. And I really want to say thanks for providing such sharp commentary and and insightful reflections for the global ideas community and to that we can really take away and digest a little as we as we go into our forum in September. So I want to thank you so much for being really generous with your time. But before we go, I have five fast questions for you. So if you're happy, I'll, I'll fire away. Okay. <laughs> so number one, what was your dream job going growing up? Look, I hate to admit to this, but I wanted to run a health department. And number two, if you could master one skill that you don't already have, what would it be? Well, I think I ended up in public health because I realized I didn't have the, uh, the skills to be an architect, and that's what I really wanted to be. <laughs> number three, if there was one thing that you don't leave home without, what is it? In Manila, it's an umbrella, but if I'm traveling outside of Manila, it's my multi-prong electrical plug. Mm. And if you could create one piece of new technology, what would it be? I would like to create a surface where we wouldn't be able to leave our microbes behind as a way of preventing the spread of AMR. And number five, if there was one book that you think we should all read, what is it? You know, I've always loved Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. I love that big picture, history of everyone that brings environment and society together. It was actually that very book that inspired me to, to embark on a journey into, into global public health. 
Thank you, Dr. Vivian Lin. We're out of time. I want to thank you so much for, for, for joining this podcast. It's been a terrific discussion and we have much to think about. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been a Global Ideas Forum podcast production in our Forum Speaker Series for 2017. Thanks for downloading the podcast. I want to say a special thanks to the Heal Foundation, who have made the production of this podcast possible. Heal are on a mission to improve healthcare through innovative education. I'd also like to once more give special thanks to Dr. Vivian Lin for joining us from Manila. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast series, tell your friends about it and give us a shout on social. It's so important to raise awareness of the issues at the heart of health and development so that more people can join the movement for better health for all. If you rate this podcast, more people will hear about it. And finally, do keep in touch. Subscribe to updates from us at our website, www.globalideas.org.au. Like our Facebook page and follow us at Globideas, G-L-O-B-I-D-E-A-S on Twitter. We have other great podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher, so check them out too. And thanks for joining us.